IBM man. They wanted a certain image to be associated with, or, or, with their organization so that their corporate identity would have positive associ associations and so that their corporate reputation would be excellent in the eye of the public. In 2014, Ray Rice, a professional running back for the Baltimore Ravens, had his contract voided after being arrested and indicted for third-degree aggregated assault because he punched his fiance in the face while riding an elevator at a casino. The Baltimore Ravens and the NFL decided to terminate his contract because Rice's behavior off the field was reflecting negative on his team and the league. His actions made them concerned about the public reputation of the organization as a whole. These two examples underscore the importance of who we say we are, who we identify with, and how that public message and identification relate to how we actually live. In other words, we have to practice what we preach. And if this is true of the corporate witness of the world of computers and athletics, how much more is it true of the church corporately and of the Christian individually? The Bible offers many warnings that if you profess to be a Christian, but you don't live a changed life, you should take no comfort in your faith. John says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. In short, how we live matters. This morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a break from Romans and Jonah, and we're going to be looking at how we are to live together as members of a local church by going through our church covenant. So this morning, if you're taking notes, we don't have a main point other than implications of what it means to be in Christ, specifically as church members. Implications of what it means to be in Christ, specifically as church members. And I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And here we come to a passage of scripture where the author of Hebrews has just spent 10 chapters helping us understand the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. For the believer, how in Christ we have a sure hope. And because of Christ, if we are believing in him by faith, we are offered full forgiveness of our sins. And so here we come to a section where we look at the implications of what it means to be in Christ. So if you're uh, reading the Bible with me, let's turn to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, before we jump into Hebrews 10 and our covenant, I want to give you a a summary of what a church covenant is. If you've been visiting us for a while, you've probably noticed and seen us um, from time to time um, uh, read our church covenant and remind each other of these promises that we've made. And you've probably asked yourself, what are they doing? Why is it only that? First Baptist Church is standing and doing this? Or where do church covenants come from? Well, in one sense, they don't come from the Bible. And what I mean by this is that we are not given a specific chapter and verse where we will read, thou shall have covenants. We don't find that explicitly. But what we do see is we find examples of covenants in both the Old and the New Testament. We find covenants between God and man, and between man and man. For example, Moses gives a covenant from God to the people of Israel. And Ezra and Nehemiah do so as well. And in the New Testament, we find that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, which is the new covenant in Christ's blood. Primarily, church covenants come from the understanding that churches are to be composed of people who are truly born again. Churches are to be composed or made up of people who are truly born again. This is what we call regenerate church membership. A church covenant can be described in at least three different ways. First, Our church covenant or a church covenant is a voluntary promise. It's a voluntary promise. It's a promise made to God, to a local church, and to oneself. A second way that we can describe a church covenant is as a summary of how we agree to live. Of how we agree to live. Our church covenant is a summary of how we agree to live, but more importantly, it is a summary of of how God would have us live. Now, our church covenant does not include every explicit command regarding obedience, but it does give us a general summary of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we find a church covenant being described as a voluntary promise, as a summary of how we agree to live, and it can also be described as a biblical standard. A church covenant is helpful in a church that practices church discipline, biblical church discipline, as we do here at First Baptist Church. As members of a church, we exhort one another to live holy lives, and we challenge one another when we see brothers or sisters persisting in sin. So a church covenant is a voluntary promise a summary of how we agree to live, and a biblical standard. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, we find a blueprint for what our life as a church should look like and what its purpose is. 
to give you some context, throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is exalted as the ultimate hope of all people. So as I mentioned earlier, in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, we find that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the final sacrifice for sins once and for all. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. Jesus is the high priest who intercedes for God's people. He is the one who's coming soon to give final rest to those who trust in him. And in light of all of this, people are called to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that when people repent, God promises to forgive people of their sins and unites them to Christ and to his people. This is what we find in Scripture. We find that a good and loving God created people to be in relationship with him. And the Bible says that God created a garden and placed man in the garden and blessed him with all kinds of fruit and trees for man to enjoy. And there was one tree in particular in the middle of the garden to remind man that man did not create himself, but that God created him. And as, in fact, it was a reminder that man was to submit to God. But when Adam and Eve willingly decided to eat from the tree, they were rejecting God. This the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says, as we've been learning through Romans, that the wages of sin is death of which we are all guilty of. But the Bible also says that God in his kindness sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to take care of our sin problem, where Jesus lived the life that we were expected to live and then offered his life as a perfect and living sacrifice to God so that whoever would repent of their sins, mainly the sin of rejecting God, from which come every other sin, and place their trust in Jesus Christ, God promises to forgive every sin and to bestow forgiveness and adoption into his family. And this is what Hebrews has been making the point of. And so what are the implications of that? Well, one of the implications of that is forgiveness of sin, being saved from the world and saved into God's people. And God does that specifically by calling Christians to be plugged in to a local church. So this brings us to verse 23 of chapter 10. If this in fact happened, if there is final forgiveness of sins and perfect union with God, then what should we do? Well, read verse 23 with me. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we've encountered the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, our call is to persevere until the end. You see, profession of faith in Christ isn't just a one-time thing. It's not something that you do once and then you move on to something bigger and better. The Bible actually doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that it is a daily reality. It is something that the people of God do as a lifestyle every day. Because every day we need to battle against sin's temptation that calls us to reject Jesus and give in to sin. 
Because every day we need to remind ourselves of the truth of Christ's claims and of the reality of the hope that Christ offers us. The question then is, how do we do that? Well, God has given his people gifts, the gift of his spirit and the gift of his word. And he's promised that if we are truly in Christ, no one will snatch his people out of his hand. And this is found in the passage that Danny read for us earlier. And in our passage this morning, we're told of the perseverance that we're called to and what that looks like in daily Christian living. So if you read with me, verse 24 and 25, we find, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us not neglect to meet together. What does the author have in mind when he says this? Is he, rever- is he referring to the universal church? Is he referring to every Christian that exists in the world currently? Well, the context helps us answer this question, and he says, no. Someday we will all be together, but not yet. What the author has in mind is he has Christians meeting together in local churches. And how do we remain faithful till the end? Well, we remain faithful till the end through our life together as a church. This is something that is fundamentally corporate. And it's not just about, it's just about me and Jesus as it's popularly heard today. Oh, my walk with God, yeah, it's just between me and God, you know. No, the Bible teaches that the Christian walk is corporate. And while this gathering together is not less than just showing up regularly on Sunday morning, it is much more than that. We are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We are to encourage one another. And what's awesome in Hebrews is that the love that these Christians had for each other was unbelievable. Because later on in this chapter... We read of the love that these Christians had for each other. We read that they stood side by side with those who were exposed to reproach and affliction for the sake of the gospel. So we're called to remain faithful through good times and the bad by forming deep relationships in our local church, fueled by the word of God that encourages us, that exhorts us, that spurs us on to forsake worldliness and using every ounce of our breath for the glory of God and the expansion of God's kingdom. Now, the very nature of of relationships is that relationships require commitment. Relationships require commitment if they are to flourish. We live in a culture that likes community, but often rejects commitment loves community but rejects commitment and the bible is clear that commitment and and community are two sides of the same coin we see that the christian life is fundamentally corporate and relational in nature and we see here in hebrews 10 
what we see here is a little bit of what commitment should look like within the local church. That's why you'll, you'll hear a lot of talk at our church about the importance of church membership. The term member comes from how the Apostle Paul talks about being part of a local church. We are all members of one body. Now, when you become a member of a church, you're basically taking on all the commitments that the Bible calls you to make to other Christians. That's what it means to be a member. Like the, like the commitment to meet together regularly that we just saw here in Hebrews. Or the commitment to encourage one another. Or the commitment to spur one another on to love and good works. When you become a member, you're taking all of these commitments and making it clear that you are committing yourself to a particular group of Christians. And for us here this morning, if you're a member of this church, you become a member of the community here at First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. And this brings us to our church covenant. Because this document is a summary of the commitments we make to each other when we join the church. Now, if you look inside... Um, your bulletin, uh, you're going to find a copy of the church covenant. And this is going to be helpful as we uh, continue with our time together this morning. You won't find this covenant word for word in the Bible because this covenant is a summary of how the Bible calls us to live together. Though you will recognize most of the phrases because they come directly from Scripture. As a reminder to, to us and to our guests to help you understand why we stand and read our church covenant from time to time, when you join First Baptist Church, you're formalizing the commitment that you're making to other members of this church. And you're promising that you'll open up your life so that we can hold up our end of this covenant in love to you. In short, you're promising with God's help to obey all that He's commanded you in the Bible about living together in community with other believers. And this brings us to our covenant. The covenant can be divided into three parts. The introduction, the promises, and the benediction. The introduction, the promises, and the benediction. The introduction is made up of that first section, that first paragraph at the top. The promises then comes in the middle. And the benediction is that last section at the bottom. So we'll start with the introduction. Follow along as I read. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. I want to note three things that we find in this first paragraph. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is that the covenant is to be made by Christians only. The covenant is to be made by Christians only. In the first line, you see Jesus' words from the opening verses of Mark, where Mark 
tells us in Mark 1.15 that when Jesus began his ministry, he began by, by proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This covenant is to be made by those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, by Christians. And once again, we're looking at the implications of what it means to have our assurance of faith in Jesus Christ, how we are to live. Second, the covenant is to be made by baptized Christians. It is to be made by those who have obeyed Jesus Christ who have understood Christ's command to go therefore and be baptized upon their profession of faith. And the third thing that we notice is that the covenant can only be kept with God's help. It can only be kept with God's help. The end of line three reads, relying on his gracious aid. Any ability that we have to fulfill the promises of this covenant is attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit, not to us. We should have no reason to be proud of spiritual success in our lives because God is the one who enables us to carry this out. This is why I believe that when we get to heaven, if we were to ask one another, why are you here? How did you get here? Oh, you're here. I didn't think you were going to be here, but... (laughs) Why? What did you do? This is the reason why none of us will be able to say, I'm here because I was a missionary and I gave up my life on the mission field. Or I'm here because I donated all of my uh, earthly goods and I'm here because of my sacrifice. Or I'm here because I I lost my limbs um, giving my life to the Lord in, in His service. None of us will be able to boast and brag when we get to heaven. Anyone who is in heaven will look to the Lamb, will look to the Savior and say, I am here because of Him. It is because of the Savior's life, because of His death, because of His resurrection, because of what He did for me that I stand here today. And it is because of Him that we are able to carry out these promises here and now. It is because of God working in us by His Spirit and through His Word. And it is God who enables us to continue doing that, doing that here and now. So, we keep the covenant relying on God's gracious aid. That's our first section, the introduction. This brings us then to the commitments. The commitments. And then we get more specific in, in this section of what we are committing to do. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now this line is a direct quote from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, where Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to work for unity because unity doesn't just happen. Why not? Well, because we're a bunch of sinners. And when you bring sinners together, sinners will naturally divide. Sinners will naturally, selfishly exalt 
their rights and preferences. So as members of this church, we commit to praying for and working for unity as we rely on God and the help that he gives us. We commit to not talk behind each other's backs. We commit to forgive one another when we offend each other. We commit to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to surrender our preferences and opinions for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. We commit ourselves to be careful with each other's reputations. These are some of the practical implications of what it means to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This morning I want to ask you, is this something that you are committed to doing? Or have you been committed to doing? Is it something that you've been praying for as we promise this, not only to God, but to one another? And know that the same good news that's offered to us in this chapter of Hebrews, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. It is the same good news that is offered to us when we see that we fall short. So when, where we see that we fall short of keeping these promises, we acknowledge them, confess them to God, and we turn to Him and we ask Him for help to enable us to keep these promises for His glory and for the good of each other. So this is one of the first things that we're committed to doing, to pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Next, we will walk together in brotherly love. We will exercise a Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as the case shall require. Now, how do we love each other? How do we love one another? Does this mean that we're to have sweet feelings towards one another? Well, that may be the case, but biblical love is much deeper than that. Biblical love is seen in an affectionate care, a practical love that makes meals for one another, that visits one another, that prays for one another. It's a watchful love, looking out to protect each other from sin and mistakes. And it is a love that is guarded and guided by truth. This, is, this means that we love each other by admonishing and appealing to each other when we sin. We don't turn a blind eye and ignore it and say, someone else will, will take care of it. It is a love that says, my brother or my sister is in need. And I will come to them in love and help them see what, where sin has blinded them for their good and for God's glory. This means that we love each other this way. Now, in our day, some would say that to speak the truth to each other or to speak truth into one another's lives or to call each other, uh, call each other out is judgmental and unloving. But the Bible tells us that this is actually not true. The most loving thing that you can do for someone else, especially someone that you are covenanting with, someone who is struggling in sin, is 
to go and to speak the truth to them about it. Not to ignore it or to just hope that it goes away. The most loving thing that you can do is to help them see it and point them to Christ. A church is a place where we can, at the same time, speak hard truths and be filled with grace. We do this because we have first received God's grace in our own lives. And this leads us to display the same grace and mercy towards others by speaking the truth in love. Next, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer both for ourselves and for others. As we saw in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, we're commanded in Scripture to meet regularly. This is why when we become members here at First Baptist Church, we're committing to assemble each Sunday morning and um, striving to meet um, throughout the week as possible. But we do this to learn God's word, to sing God's praises, and to pray together. By assembling together each Sunday morning, we're taking the first step towards growing in unity with each other because we can't grow in unity where we're not striving to meet together. By assembling together, we strive for unity. So as a member, we expect to see one another here regularly on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord. Now, do people have vacations or do things come up? Yes, we all live in this world where unexpected things come up. But the normal thing that we do as Christians is to prioritize the Lord's Day on uh, Sunday as we gather with His people to worship the Lord. Sometimes, when people stop assembling with other believers on a regular basis, it can be for various reasons, but sometimes it can be a reflection of one of two things. It can be that they're either in sin or they're about to be in sin. Sin keeps us from meeting together, but meeting together helps us to fight against sin. So when you're struggling with sin, you, ch- you should stay away from, you should not stay away from church until you've cleaned your act up. No, that's actually a lie. What you should be doing is striving to continue coming to church because this is where you're going to hear the preached word of God through which God works by His Spirit to bring conviction and to teach and to help us see where we are not aligning with what God calls us or how God calls us to live. We don't want to forsake the assembling of ourselves with others on the Lord's day. Then we read, We will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We live in a world that's fallen, in the world that's full of envy, full of jealousy, full of greed. But as a church, we're called to be different. Because we love each other and have compassion and sympathy for each other, we are called, for example, in Romans 12, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. That means that as a church family, 
We rejoice when others get pregnant, even if that's not possible for us. It means that when someone else gets a a promotion and we would give almost anything to just have a job, we commit to rejoice. It means that when someone else gets a promotion and maybe it's a promotion that we ourselves have been desiring, we rejoice as well. And we are called to see each other's happiness and to praise God for it and trusting ourselves to God's goodwill and God's purposes in life because He is the sovereign God and we are in Christ. We're also called to mourn with those who mourn. We live in a world where there is death, where there is divorce, where there is friends forsaking each other. We live in a fallen world. But as a church family, we're called in Galatians 6.2 to bear one another's burdens because we are not designed to go through difficulty and sorrow alone and God ministers to us through His people in times of trouble. God is wise and He has given us His word to guide us so that we would be able to live in this world for His glory, for the good of our brothers and for our sisters. And these are some of the ways that we do it. We continue reading in our church covenant. We will earnestly endeavor to bring up those who are or may be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, some of us aren't parents, and some are. But here, we should all have the desire and uh, we should have the desire to be committed to help those who are bringing up their children as Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 call us to do. Because we are all in this church coveting, uh, covenanting, promising to one another to seek the good of one another. And all of us have unsaved loved ones whether they're friends or family or co-workers, but we commit to make Christ known to them, praying for them, praying for each other's witness and encouraging each other in the great task of evangelism. But we can't do this if we are not meeting together, if we are neglecting to meet together. We also promise that we will seek divine aid to enable us to walk circumspectly and watchfully in the world, denying ungodliness and every worldly lust. We promise this because we live in a fallen world, but we're not to be of the world. We need encouragement to stay in the narrow path of righteousness and to say no to the world. We need encouragement to seek satisfaction only in Christ and not in the things of this world. Scripture calls us aliens, but we too often feel as if we're right at home. Covenanting with other believers reminds us of our status as pilgrims and sojourners in this world because we have to be reminded that this world is not our home. So we promise to seek divine aid to enable us to walk this way. We also see in our covenant that we will strive together for the support of a faithful evangelical ministry among us as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and to the spread of the gospel through all nations. By becoming a member, we commit to come alongside everyone else 
to uphold the gospel witness in this church. And we uphold the gospel witness here through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We uphold the gospel witness here through church discipline. We uphold the church witness here through giving faithfully and sacrificially of our finances via regular offering or benevolence fund. If you join the church, you own part of the responsibility for all that goes on here, for its worship, for its evangelism, for its doctrine, for its relief of the poor, and much more. It's not, just, it's not a one-man show. This is something that we all promise to be a part of. Now, I mentioned the practice of church discipline. Um, church discipline is the removal of an individual from our membership because of unrepentant sin in their lives. Essentially, what's happening is that when someone professes with their mouths to be a follower of Christ, but their lives give evidence of something that's contrary. So out of love for them and out of reputation for Jesus Christ, we are making it clear to them and to us and to the watching world that the life that they're living is not representative of a Christian's life. Now, they are welcome to join and attend here, but they should not put hope in their profession of faith if they continue in unrepentant and persistent sin. And they may not partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, the key words here is unrepentant and persistent. Uh, We find in Matthew 18... Um, and 1 Corinthians 5, examples of church discipline. And here in Matthew 18, we find a process that doesn't just happen from one night to the next. It's actually a process that can take weeks or months. And this is because church discipline is never retributive, is not to say you've harmed us, so we want to harm you. That's actually not what's in mind here. Church discipline is always restorative. It's always for the good of a church member. It's always for the good of someone who proclaims to be a Christian, but whose lifestyle contradicts that. So church discipline helps that person come to think very carefully about their profession and their lifestyle. We saw glimpses of this in in Jonah, for example, as He clearly disobeyed God's command to rise, go to Nineveh, and to preach. He he rose, but he went in the opposite direction, and he persisted in his sin. And God pursued him, taking different steps at a time. He cast, uh, uh, the Bible says that he cast the wind, and there was a great storm. And even that didn't uh, help uh, Jonah, or Jonah chose to, to reject that and not repent. God exposed his sin. God um, ultimately hands him over to his sin by having him tossed over the boat and into the water. And we see that that um, discipline that he received, it reached its purpose because while he was in the sea, he came to an end of himself and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord rescues him. And we see something similar in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's a man who is sleeping with his father's wife and the church isn't saying anything about it. And Paul says this is a case where 
um, it's not a slower process. It's actually a faster process because the stakes are higher. So he is excommunicated from the church, church discipline. And in the second Corinthians, we find an account of what's believed to be this very same man who repents of his sin. And Paul commands the church, or calls the church to bring him back into church membership because the goal was accomplished. He repents and believes. So while it may seem like something that is unloving, it's actually one of the most loving things that we can do for someone who professes to be a Christian, but whose lifestyle contradicts it. Now, there are many sins that church discipline doesn't apply to. It's not for sin generally, because if not, that would include all of us. But church discipline is for unrepentant sin. And we want to make that clear. It's for unrepentant, serious sin that one persists in. And this is what we promise and commit ourselves to, to loving one another in these ways. One of the most horrifying things that we could do is to allow ourselves to live in sin only to come um, before the Lord as we read in Matthew 6 and to hear Jesus' words. Depart from me, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you. You worship me with your mouth, but your heart was far from me. One of the ways that we strive to love one another and to keep us from going astray is by practicing church discipline. And then we read, we will endeavor by example and effort to win souls to Christ. With the Lord's help, we commit to live a life of evangelism to help others do so and to help others do so. Evangelism can take place in many ways, and one of the most obvious ways is to share the gospel with unbelievers. But there's also another way that we can evangelize, and that our church covenant calls us to evangelize, and that is that God will show the watching world who He is through the church. We are a corporate witness. We are a display of God's glory, and God's holiness, and God's grace. Therefore, How we serve together and how we love together is a means that God uses to communicate the gospel to the world. We see this in John 13, 34, as uh, Danny uh, read for us earlier in our scripture reading, where Jesus shows his master plan for evangelism. He says, a new command I give to you, love one another, and as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we're not just individuals that are assembling here at the same spot on Sunday mornings. We're actually a group of believers that come together with the intention of being holy. And this is an evangelistic tool that the Lord can use for His glory to draw people to Himself. And the last section that we come to here in the promises is, and through life amidst evil report and good report, we will seek to live to the glory of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is the goal, or this is the aim of Christian living, to live for the praise and for the glory of God. We understand that we have been created by God and for God. And we have been saved for good works. If you're a Christian, this is what God has redeemed you for. 
It is why he has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if you're not a Christian, the Bible says that there is free forgiveness, free and full forgiveness, if you repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about this, feel free to ask anyone uh, that you came with or anyone here this morning, and we would be more than happy to tell you more about this. And then we end with the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. These words are from the last verse of 2 Corinthians. If you are in Christ, you know the grace of Christ. And if you are in Christ, you know the love of God. And if you are in Christ, you know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This benediction is a prayer for this and asking for growth and much more in this. So what does it look like to persevere in Christ? What does it look like to persevere in Christ? It means doing this. It means keeping this covenant in community with other believers with where strong relationships allow you to encourage others and for others to encourage you. Where relationships are built on commitment and our commitment to each other as a church begins with the promises from this covenant that are grounded in Scripture. Promises that you make not just to people with the same background as you or in the same profession or people to whom you have a natural affinity but promises that you make to all of God's children who are assembled here as part of our church. And in that, we are spurred on and our Lord is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a God who saves. We thank you that you have not paid us according to our sinfulness, but you and your kindness have given us your son, Jesus Christ. You have saved us through him and you've saved us out of the world and into your church. We thank you that it is by your grace that we can now say that we are your children and it is by your grace that we can now promise to obey you and promise to one another to help one another live out your word so that we would all be a living testimony of your work in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the ways that we fall short of keeping these promises. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ there is an abundance of forgiveness. And we praise you that your word says that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to cleanse us and purify us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would enable us by your spirit and your word to keep this so that others would come to know you and that they would repent and turn from their sins and turn to Christ so that you would receive the glory due to your name. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.